as kind of a framework for what we're looking at, I want to mention one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation we celebrated a couple of Sundays ago, but it's as we still are lingering in that remembrance, one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation that still remains today within the church is what's known as the priesthood of all believers. This principle developed by Martin Luther was asserting that all Christians have direct access to God and do not need the mediation of a priest. Now, while Luther developed this concept in response to abuses within the Catholic Church, really the origin of this idea is, has its roots in the Scriptures, specifically in the New Testament. In particular, you may recall uh, the Apostle Peter in his first recorded letter to the church boldly declares, as we said as part of our call to worship, that in and through Christ we are all priests of God. Now, I, I bring all of this up, and this is kind of the framework for looking at Exodus, because while the priesthood of all believers has been a rallying cry for Protestants for centuries, and while it's given a ton of lip service in the church, when it comes to actual practice, it's often a misunderstood concept or frankly just plain ignored. And the classic example of this is, and I, I am speaking from a place of sensitivity, well, you're the pastor, that's your job. Well, that's what, that's what we have pastors for. And when I mention the priesthood of all believers, I sort of get a, well, that's your job. When it comes to debating the priesthood of all believers, maybe instead of arguing about the title of priest or pastor, we should pay more attention to the shared ministry of the priesthood. And so today, to hopefully correct this inconsistency, to maybe clarify the understanding of that rallying cry, we're going to go back to the beginning, the creation and ordination of the priesthood in Exodus 28 and 29. These chapters focus on the manner of dress and the required ceremony to set the priests apart for service, and they're fa fairly lengthy. We're not going to go through them line by line, but two questions that are going to focus our reflection this morning are this. What does this text tell me about being a priest among God's people? And then the second question is, what does this tell us about being a kingdom of priests to kind of set the stage, so you don't have to move in your Bible, I'll read it from Exodus 40. We, we're going backwards because the priesthood was actually established after the incident with the golden calf. And so as we've walked through that, I want you to see in Exodus 40, near the very end of the book, how Moses basically calls for what he's already outlined to come together. So I'm going to read briefly from Exodus chapter 40, starting with verse 12, and the verses will be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to the priesthood that will continue for all generations to come. And Moses did everything as the Lord commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God calling for to what to be put into action what he previously described in Exodus 28 and 29. And so we're going to look first at Exodus 28, which describes the, the uniform, if you will, of the priesthood. And I actually have some visual aids. So if we could put up the first slide, that would be great. Well... Ah, uh, there we go. This is a picture of the priest as it's described in Exodus 28. And the first piece that I want you to see in the overall picture is what's described in 28 as what is, it's called the ephod. And there's various descriptions of this article of clothing. 
within the Old Testament. So we're not exactly sure what it look, looks like, but from those varying descriptions, this is sort of an artistic rendition. It was something like an apron. It was uh, sleeveless, it was draped over the shoulders, and it was tied around the waist. And what, what's described is each shoulder piece contained an onyx stone upon which the names of the tribes of Israel were engraved, six for each stone. And they were to be a permanent memorial, God's word says, to the sons of Jacob, a permanent memorial of Israel before the Lord. Thus, the idea was that whenever Aaron or one of his successors put on the ephod and went before the Lord, he brought Israel with him. To put on the ephod and to wear it in the presence of the Lord was to carry the people and their needs before Yahweh. And there was a practical reason for this, to guard Aaron and his successors against the temptation to serve out of their own self-interest. I mean, if you think about it, with Israel figuratively on his shoulders, Aaron would not forget his role, his purpose as a priest. Israel would be foremost on his mind every time. And that's why there's that language as the ephod is a memorial to the Lord. Properly dressed, Aaron would bring Israel to the Lord's attention each time as well. And this isn't to suggest that God forgot Israel ever. But it's the idea that in the Bible, memory language, when it's used in relationship to God, is metaphorical for salvation. When Aaron would come, he would not remind God, but he would again bring Israel into God's salvation. God remembering in the Bible is equated with the Lord intervening, offering us rescue, offering us redemption and hope. And so the ephod demonstrates that part of the role of the priest was to carry the people into the presence of the Lord to shoulder their burdens, and to seek the Lord's saving grace. Now, the next piece of closing, it's described as the breast piece. If we go to the next, next slide. It's narrowed in there. It's described as a kind of shield or a vest worn over the chest that was decorated with 12 precious stones. Again, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Now, inside the breast piece was a pocket containing what is referred to as the Urim and the Thummim. No one knows exactly what these things were or how they functioned. But what we do know is that the overall breast piece was designed to help. It's described as helping with decision making. What we are told is the Urim and the Thummim were to be placed directly over the priest's heart. That pocket was specifically put over the priest's heart. Aaron wore the breast piece as well as he went before the Lord. He wore it as he discerned Yahweh's leading and made decisions for the people. What I want you to see here is note that Aaron's leadership decisions were made inside and not outside of the tabernacle. He was to make them in the Lord's presence with God involved from the beginning to the end. And note that there were 12 stones on the breastpiece, one for each tribe. As I've said, Aaron was instructed to wear all 12 stones as he inquired of the Lord. What does this represent? That all 12 tribes were represented in the decision-making process. Aaron was not to cater to the interest of one tribe, any one tribe, one that's more powerful, the larger tribe, the more numerous tribe. Neither, though, was he dis to disregard a tribe. The, the detail and arrangement of the breastpiece, especially the specific placement of the Urim and the Thummim, reveal that the decisions of the priest for the people were not made in a vacuum. They were always made from the heart of the Lord's presence. They were always made in the interest of the whole people of Israel, not any one tribe or group. Contrast that with often how we make our decisions in, in our own, on our own terms and in our own strength. 
Let's go to the last slide. The final piece of clothing that's highlighted is this. It's what's called um, a gold plate in 28, but in 29 and elsewhere, you'll actually notice it's referred to as a diadem. It's a crown. It's a gold plate engraved with the words, holy to the Lord. In Hebrew, holy to the Lord. And the idea here, which is quite radical, which Israel fails to kind of get, if you know the story later on, is that they don't have a king, an earthly king. They have a heavenly king in God. And without a king, the high priest would be the highest representative before Israel for God. The Lord would deal directly with the high priest for the guilt of the sins committed by the people, by those he represents. Get this, Aaron and his successors bear the judgment that's placed upon the people regardless of whether or not they were involved in committing the specific sins of the people. The high priest was set apart. The priests were set apart for this sole purpose. The high priest was responsible for leading the worship and sacrifices of the people. Through this work of intercession... By, and, and this is what was represented by holy to the Lord. This is your job. This is what you have been called out to do. Whenever God, whatever God saw in the people of Israel, he always saw the holiness, the dedication and intervention of the priest. It was almost a, a permanent reminder of the work that we've seen Moses do in the midst of the people's great sin, of continuing to hold before the Lord, these are your people in light of your promise. Now, we've gone through this very, very quickly and. Your head might be spinning a little bit or you might be craving more. But what I want you to, to gather in all of this is that what we have in the details of the garments is more than the picture of a priestly outfit. Why it's given to us in Exodus 28, why we can't just gloss over it, is that this is actually a pattern for living before God and others. One thing that we didn't talk about at the beginning of 28, which is very interesting, is that the dress of the priests, the material of the, 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 the outfit was made out of the colors, matched the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle, as we've talked about earlier in our series on Exodus, was the Lord's place, God's place. The matching uniforms, colors, material, sent the clear message that the priests belonged to God. In their dress, they were set apart to the Lord. Now, to apply this to our own lives, we often, maybe many of us today, made choices. We, set, we use our dress to set ourselves apart from others, to establish our identities. We talk about having Sunday morning clothes. We have other outfits that we wear at work or places when we go to family dinner. We use our dress to set ourselves apart from others, to establish our identities. The question that this text raises for us is what clothes are we wearing most of the time? Are we wearing the garments of salvation beyond Sunday morning? I know people who get really, really excited or really, really intense about how we dress on Sunday morning. And yet, I don't find people who get all that as intense or as excited about what happens or what they're wearing beyond Sunday morning. And here in Exodus 28, it's talking about something deeper than the clothes that we put on. What are we wearing? How are we dressing ourselves? What are we dressing ourselves in? Are we clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Are we embodying the presence of God to others? Because like Aaron and the priest, what we see right here from the, the, the garments that are described, like Aaron and the priest, we have been set apart. Why we exist as the church is to carry others into the presence of God. And this has implications not just for what happens outside those doors, but it has implications for what we do when we gather here. When we worship, if we are priests, if this is speaking to us, it is not enough if we come into this place 
for us to be self-interested prayers. To lift up merely our own struggles. And sometimes in the church, that's often what we, all we can be about. Is we can be praying for ourselves, praying for our own people. And there's a value and a significance in that. But we need to remember, and this is a, this uniform, this description is a stark reminder that we have been brought together. Like Aaron and the priests were set apart to shoulder the burdens. To intercede not just for ourselves, but for the sins, the needs of our neighborhood of our community, of our schools, of our governments. And that's why in the insert that we have, that I, we ho I hope that you use during the week, it's to guide our time that we're not just to be praying for our own people, but we're to be praying for the community, the nation, the nations of the world that surround us. We must carry the leaders, the nations and peoples of the world into our prayers, etched upon our shoulders and our chests, because if we don't, who will? It's why we exist as the church. We can't. As the church turn a blind eye like the rest of the world to the brokenness of our humanity. Because if we're not willing to see and to point, who will? The pain and need of this world has to be held close to our heart. That's why we exist as priests and as the church. And if we are willing to look where others won't. If we are willing to hold close to our heart the things that others ignore or look past. Then what will happen if that is where we start, our decisions will come from the heart. Our decisions will be made like the priests were required to in the interests of all people, not just the most powerful, not just the largest tribe. And many of us, frankly, and this gets back to wearing Sunday clothes but changing into different outfits later, many of us, when we come to church, we're in church mode. When we come to this place, we're in a different mode. But when we're out there, there's a different way in which we make decisions, a different way in which we evaluate things. And for many of us, if we admit it, what we do when we come here on Sunday is we're looking for God to bless and sanctify what we've already decided to do. And the priesthood is about every decision begins and ends in the presence of the Lord. This isn't the place where we come to get what we've decided to do blessed. This is the place where we come to seek what we ought to do. And then we take it out to the world. How we live and engage our neighbors, how we live and engage this world cannot be divorced or decided outside the presence of the Lord. Our worship in here ought to inform our life out there. Because we've been called together. To bring others before the Lord. That's what this is all about. To seek and intercede for salvation on their behalf. And that should be manifest in our prayers, but it also should be manifest by bringing people to church. Not because this is a great place to be. I hope it is. I think it is. But because this is where all of God's people are called to be. In the presence of God, among the people of God. Experiencing the gifts of salvation. Hearing the word of the Lord. Exodus 28 is the description of clothes, but in many ways it's the description of our identity. Our identity in Christ as priests. But then there's Exodus 29. <laughs> Exodus 29 is after describing the garments, the outfit. Exodus 29 then describes, and Moses is instructed about the ordination ceremony for the priests. How are the people set apart, the Levites, Aaron and his son, as priests? And another word, we've talked about it before for what's happening here. Uh, the fancy word, theological word, is consecration. This is all about consecration. How are the Levites, Aaron and his sons, consecrated? And to consecrate means how are they set apart? How are they made holy? Now, in one sense, you know, if we really, if we, we step back, I mean, isn't that what the clothes were all about? Wasn't the whole point of what they were supposed to wear and how it was designed and what it signified? Wasn't that what made them holy? Well, apparently, based on Exodus 29, not. Apparently, 
The clothes by themselves don't make the man or the priest. Apparently, there's more than just what we wear. There's also a work that has to be done. Before you get dressed up, we see, for Aaron and his sons, before you put on the holy garments, the first thing we see in Exodus 29 is you have to take a bath. Aaron and his sons need to get washed up. They need to come clean with God. And being covered with the water is this ceremonial act that points to a deeper spiritual purification that's going to be going on through this whole service. And notice that Aaron and his sons don't wash themselves. They receive a washing. They are washed. And after they are cleansed, they are dressed. And then once they are dressed, and you would think this is a little bit backwards, but to appreciate the significance of this, after they are dressed with the garments that we've just looked at, we're told that they're anointed with oil. The oil is poured over their heads. It's poured over their heads so that it comes dripping down their beards. It's literally dripping from their beards. And, and we know in Scripture that being anointed with oil is a mark of the Holy Spirit. The priests of God have been cleansed and then they are filled with God's Holy Spirit. Again, this ceremonial act points to a deeper spiritual empowerment that results from being set apart. In being set apart, we are cleansed and being set apart, we are empowered. That we don't operate or live by our own strength. And this is, comes to fruition in the second half of what takes place in this ordination service. What happens in the second part is the sacrificing of three animals. And I want to real quickly look at these three sacrifices because they're significant together. The first sacrifice is a bull. And the bull, we're told, is sacrificed as a sin offering. Aaron and his sons would place their hands on the head of the bull. And this signified the transference of their sins, of their brokenness to the bull. The bull was then slaughtered and its blood was sprinkled and poured on the altar of the Lord. The bull died so that they might live. And the sprinkling of the blood reflected something that we don't like to see, but it's so graphic here that it really brings out something we often are very much more sanitary about. The slaughtering of the bull, the sprinkling of the blood, reflected the butcher's bill, if you will, for sin. The consequence of our broken relationship with God and each other. Where it ultimately leads. The inevitability of death. The loss of life itself, but at the same time, from putting their hands on that bull, bull before it was slaughtered. In the sprinkling of blood on the altar, it also demonstrates that we are justified. We are saved from death. We are made right through another. In this first offering, this sin offering, we're told that the fat, the best part of the bull, what was considered the best part, was burned on the altar before the Lord. The very best that there was, still not good enough for the perfection of God, was put on the altar of the Lord. But the rest of the carcass was destroyed outside the camp. Again, what we see concurrently is we bring the best that we have and God takes it. Yet at the same time, the best that we have is not enough because what has to be removed from our lives, from the camp, is our sin, is our brokenness. The sin offering goes right into another offering. From sacrificing a bull, a ram is brought forward. And the ram is sacrificed as what's called a burnt offering. Aaron and his sons once again place their hands on the, heads of the, the head of the ram. Again, signifying this transference of life and death. But this time, their identification with the ram also has to do with how it was handled. With the bull, with the sin offering, it was taken outside the camp. But this first ram is sacrificed completely on the altar. Because sin had been removed, as represented by the bull, a holy and pleasing sacrifice can now be offered to the Lord. And so the whole animal is offered up to God. No meat is pulled out of the fire. 
It's all consumed. Aaron and his sons identify by laying hands on this ram before it is offered to the Lord. They identify that they were completely dedicating their lives to God. They are holding nothing back and giving themselves to the Lord's service. From an offering for sin to an offering for dedication, wholly offered, wholly and pleasing to the Lord, to a third sacrifice, another ram. And a sacrifice that if you're not familiar at all with this part of the Bible and all the things that are described here and in Leviticus, is this was a distinctive sacrifice just for the priests. This, third, this second ram, this third sacrifice, and once again as this second ram was brought forward, Aaron and his sons would place their hands on the second ram. And as this ram was sacrificed, the fat was burned on the altar to God, as we've seen before, offering the best of the animal, the meat of the animal. This time, however, was cooked for Aaron and his sons. But before they could eat it, the blood from this second ram, the blood, it's described, and some of you may get kind of grossed out by this, but the blood was taken and put on the right ear of Aaron and his sons. And then it was put on the right thumb. And then it was put on the right big toe. And then the blood was sprinkled on the altar. What's up with the blood of the third animal? Why this? Again, bringing apart, bringing full circle this idea of being forgiven, cleansing, this idea of being wholly offered to God, but now being marked for service and what that service looks like. Through the blood of the second ram, the priest is sanctified, to use a little bit of Lutheran language, not just justified, made right with God, but now empowered given full shape to his or her, his identity, completely set apart. And what's beautiful about this picture of the blood being put on the ear and on the thumb and on the toe is that the priest is fully consecrated from, as we like to say, head to toe. Why the ear? Why blood on the ear? Because as we know, a relationship with God, for that to be maintained, we have to give our ear, our regular attention to the Lord. Why the thumb? Because no matter what fingers we use, have you ever tried to use just your fingers and not your thumbs? No matter what fingers we use, we have to use them in conjunction with our thumb when we work and want to pick things up with our hands. And what this is indicating is the work of our hands must be driven by the work of God. Hence, there's blood placed on the thumb. God reaches, God touches, God holds, supports, and carries others through our hands. Why the big toe? Because our steps are to be ordered by the Lord. Where we go, to whom we go, we are always following the Lord. We must walk, we must carry ourselves in a manner that is worthy, that is true and reflective of the grace of God. If you've got Exodus 29 open, you might miss it, but notice that it's only after their sins have been removed, it's only after they've been totally dedicated to the Lord that Aaron and his sons are invited to eat in the presence of God. It's only then that communion is possible. Now, bringing this all around, we could, we could uh, go to the letter of Hebrews. And the letter of Hebrews, which we, we could take so many, so many weeks and months to study, points back to what we see here in Exodus 28 and 29. And it tells us that the creation of the priesthood, the details of the ordination of Aaron and his sons, which we've looked at so briefly, all of this was looking ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. In the letter to the Hebrews, that author says that what we need to understand and why we need to look at this is so that we can appreciate how Jesus is a new, greater, better, and perfect high priest. He is better and he is perfect because he comes not just to intercede for Israel, but he comes for all the world. 
Unlike those high priests that we've just read about, starting with Aaron and his successors, generation through generation, Jesus does not need to offer continuing sacrifices every day. If you've been grossed out at all by the three that I mentioned just for this service, it's every day. Every day blood is being spilled. Every day sacrifices are being offered. But Jesus is the perfect high priest because Jesus does not have to do that. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews says that all of those animal sacrifices finally found their fulfillment in Jesus' once and for all offering of his life. And when you see it through this lens, there's a lot of irony when we look at the cross, especially in light of looking at the, the garments and the ceremony for the priests. Because ironically, Jesus fulfilled this high priestly function not in lavish priestly garments, as we read about. He did this naked as he hung on the cross. But what we're supposed to see through Exodus 28 and 29, when we look up at that cross and Jesus upon it, what we're supposed to now be able to see is what others could not perceive then, and many still struggle to see now, is that Jesus was clothed. He was clothed, as Paul will later say, in righteousness. He was clothed by his holy and blameless life before God. His holy and blameless life before God, if you will, was his ephod. It enabled him to carry the burdens of the universe on his shoulders. His gracious and everlasting love displayed on that cross was his breast piece. Leading him to bear the guilt of others, to face the consequences of sin for the whole world. And he was set apart not by a crown of gold reading holy to the Lord, but by a crown of thorns above which was nailed a sign proclaiming him the king of the Jews. Beloved, we look up to the cross and hopefully see it differently in light of what we have here in Exodus. One, so that we can appreciate even more so how great a savior we have, how great a high priest we have in Christ. But Hebrews doesn't stop there. The letter goes on to say that what we need to understand is what we have here is not just a ritual. What was taking place in Exodus 28 and 29 is not just a ritual, which is why many of us ignore it. Oh, this is irrelevant. The letter to the Hebrews says, no, this is a pattern. This is an indication, a way for us to understand how God calls and equips each one of us. Our journey of faith in Christ mirrors the progression that we see here in Exodus 29. We who follow Jesus as his disciples have been called into this priestly ministry. It's a journey not just for those designated as priests and pastors, but for the whole church. And for God to make this clear, for God to prepare us as a kingdom of priests, it begins in that journey by setting us apart through baptism. Before we can come to this God, we have to take a bath. We have to get cleaned. We have to be cleansed by the waters, much like the priests were. We are anointed in that moment that we are cleansed as the priests were by the Holy Spirit for service. Baptism is the beginning of our priesthood. But it is the beginning. The moment that we have been cleansed and anointed, then we are able to experience, to begin to appreciate how we are justified, how we are dedicated, how we are sanctified through communion with Christ and with each other. We come together every Sunday. Why do we do church? Why do we take this time? Because worship is our sacrifice of praise that leads to our commitment to serve. We come together, most importantly of all, to once again confess our sins, not because we doubt what Jesus our high priest has done, but so that we can testify to our reliance upon the blood of another to grant forgiveness. That we can say that it is not ourselves that make ourselves free, but it is another who sets us free. 
And we come together and we come to this table to say that the blood that sets us apart, the blood that sets us free for this ministry, doesn't belong to bull or rams, but to Jesus himself. Again and again, week after week, we come and we are covered by the blood. Over and over we come and we hear and hopefully we heed. We remember our redemption, our reconciliation, our resurrection in Christ as our lives change and expand. And in the remembrance, we cannot help but proclaim, but share from head to toe the grace, love, and mercy of our God with the world. The ultimate sacrifice has been given in the body that was broken, but the bread that we share reminds us to offer our lives in sacrificial service to the Lord. If you will, an offering for sin, which is what brings us to this place, leads us to offering ourselves for each other, for all the world. That's how Paul understood it. Paul, in that epic chapter in Romans, in chapter 12, is tying into, he's tapping into this very idea when he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul is drawing on this picture of the ordination ceremony of the priest. When the whole burnt offering is being lifted up. Likewise, he is saying we are to offer ourselves to God, the whole of ourselves, the whole of our lives in gratitude to God. And fundamentally, offering ourselves to the Lord is about offering ourselves to his people. Jesus is the offering for sin. But people still need to be led from sin and loved in their sin by walking with them through the process of confession, repentance, and restoration. We don't offer sacrifices, but we do mediate the truth of the gospel in what we say and in how we live. Our priestly garments may not be literal, but we can and we still must put on the righteousness of Christ by living transparent lives, by admitting our weaknesses, our dependency on Christ so that we don't get prideful in helping others. So that we don't forget why we're here and how we got here. We model humility constantly coming to the cross of Christ. To deal with our own brokenness before engaging in the sins of others. That's why we come together to worship. Because in this way when we come together we clothe ourselves with the love and compassion of Christ. As we prepare to minister to others in his name. Beloved, I hope this is speaking to you at some level. I hope this is speaking to us collectively because in the limited time that we have each week, there's a lot more time that we're wasting as the body of Christ, as the priests of God. The world in which we live is crying out for intercession. Those who do not know, those who have not yet heard, they need representation. We live in a world that has so much good in it, but we live in a world that is also filled with darkness a world that's overtaken by lies. It's a world that's crying out for intercession. There need to be witnesses. Witnesses who point to the love, who point to the grace, who point to the truth of Jesus Christ. And beloved, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if we don't, who will? Because this is our holy and living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. This is what we were created and called together to do. We are those witnesses. So, beloved, may we this day live as those ordained to this work, bound together in this ministry, 
For in Christ, as the church, we are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are the priesthood of all believers. Amen? Amen.